In some circles, spirituality is viewed in a very mystical kind of a way. The more mystical one is, it is thought, the more spiritual that person is. And in those circles, the deeper life is spoken of. As if to say, I know there are Christians, but then there are those of us who have a much deeper life than the rest, and we have things that we know about that nobody else knows about. And it's almost like a neo-Gnostic, not neo-Nazi, neo-Gnostic kind of an experience, the mystery religions. And I'm all for the deeper life. However, you can go off the deep end sometimes in talking and trying to get into what is called the deeper life. And we mentioned last week that some people like to talk about giving your heart to God, but that the mind doesn't matter and the body doesn't matter. The body is really unimportant, and if you pander to the body or do anything for the body, it's, it's all the flesh, and the flesh is perishing. So you just give your heart, but your mind doesn't matter, so you shouldn't think, and your body doesn't matter, so you can let it go. And that's interesting in light of this passage, which talks about presenting your body to the Lord and having your mind transformed as if to say that our bodies are important because it's the base of operations for God to do His will in our lives, and that we should also think that it's not a sin to think. In fact, the Scripture commands it. Jesus said to a lawyer in the New Testament, he quoted that famous Old Testament passage that says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. That we can love God with our mind. In fact, in some portions of the Word of God, the heart and the mind are synonyms. They're one and the same. One example of that is Jeremiah 31 that speaks of the New Covenant. It is a prophecy that is given in Hebrew parallelism, and the heart and the mind are seen appositionally. That is, one speaks of the other. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. In their minds I will write them. Jesus commanded us, Learn of me. Peter said, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God said through the prophet Hosea, My people are dying because of lack of knowledge. And because he said, you have rejected knowledge, he said to his people Israel, I have rejected you from being priest before me. So all of these are important. It's okay to think as a Christian. There's no sign that as you walk into the church says, check your brains here. And have some mystical thing that you call your heart and you forget all about your body and all about your mind. Paul emphasizes this, and most of the great revivals of the past, I mentioned, have centered themselves on the book of Romans, but most of the great revivals, if you've done any reading or research in this at all, know that there's been a great emphasis in those revivals upon theology, doctrine, and expository preaching. I wanted to quote this to you from James Montgomery Boyce, sort of a modern-day theologian, but I concur with him. He says, people aren't thinking anymore. Brain cells are seriously under-exercised. Contemplation has become an old-fashioned word that has little place in our fast-paced, high-tech world. 
For thinking, we have substituted entertainment. The substitution has been so effective that many of us believe that entertainment actually makes us think. We think of ourselves as being the best informed generation in history because of television. But TV is not informing us, it's entertaining us. There is a difference. Let's consider the world before television, when the written word was our basis for learning. The written word allows detachment and time for assimilation and contemplation. It is suited to teaching about the abstract and the logical. In contrast, television bombards us with images that allow no time for assimilation. It actually keeps us from thinking. What happens when one mixes television with religion? Does religion then become entertainment? Neil Postman, a Columbia University professor and author of Amusing Ourselves to Death, that's the name of his book, says it does. The TV version of religion offers polished musical performances and attention-grabbing storytelling, usually in the form of personal testimonies, but it does not offer theology or sound Bible teaching. The danger in all of this is that we come to expect our churches to conform to what we see on television. Forget expository preaching and theology. Bring on the funny anecdotes and the lively choruses. Our great loss, however, is our sense of the transcendent. God becomes the missing person in our churches. It's true that television, we have become the TV generation, has effectively shortened our attention spans. People are unable to focus for long periods of time in one direction. And there is then the demand that has to be constantly fed for entertainment. Paul says your mind matters to God. In the first two verses, well, let's read the first eight verses of chapter 12 because we are optimistic. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, as I said last week, we were only able to make it to 1.5 verses. We hope to cover the rest of this tonight. All of this deals with the will of God. We mentioned last time we're entering into a new section in Romans, if you want to outline it in your mind, the section called the will of God. The wrath of God has been spoken of, the grace of God, the plan of God, and now the will of God. And in this section, 
through the rest of the book, Paul is very applicational and very personal. And he says, Do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Transformation. Presentation of your body to God, we saw was the first step. Transformation of your mind is the second step to know the will of God generally. When it says transformed in verse 2, it's a word that when I tell it to you in the Greek language, you will know the word in English. You ready? Metamorpho. You say, oh, I've never heard of that. Metamorphosis. You've heard that word. It means a change, a physical change. Generally, we think of it as a physical change. It means a total change. Think of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That's a metamorphosis. A total change. Both Matthew and Mark use that word to describe the transfiguration, the change that took place when Jesus was transfigured on a mountaintop with a few of the disciples. So the idea is that our thinking gets changed by the Spirit of God. We don't think the way we used to. There is this process where our thoughts get redirected. And instead of conforming to the world by the grace of God and by His Spirit, we are conformed into the image of God. He changes our minds. So we need to be in a process of thinking through truth. That should be a daily process. We are thinking through truth, and as we think through truth, our thoughts are transformed. It helps us to serve God eventually. We present our bodies to God, our minds get transformed. I don't know if any of you have read A.W. Tozer, but if you haven't, read him, and read him a lot. He happens to be good. He's one of the great dead guys who's written books. And, you know, I'll tell you what, um, some of the best Christian reading is found written by A.W. Tozer. He said this, Aimless activity is beneath the worth and dignity of a human being. Activity that does not result in progress toward a goal is wasted. Yet most Christians have no clear end toward which they are striving. The great weight of exhortation these days is in the direction of zeal and activity. Let's get going is the favorite watchword for gospel workers with the result that everyone feels ashamed to sit down and think. We present our bodies to God. Our minds are transformed by God. Question. How do our minds, our thoughts, get transformed by God? The answer is quite simple. The Holy Spirit of God does it, and He uses the Word of God. Remember back in 1 Corinthians, it says, the, well, forward in 1 Corinthians from Romans, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. However, next verse says, the spiritual man understands all things, or discerns, judges all things, yet is understood of no man. And so the Spirit of God allows us to understand things. He opens up our minds, our spiritual understanding. And then also, he does it, of course, by the Word of God. Paul said, the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Hebrews says it's able to divide between that which is soulish and that which is spiritual. So, 
we present our bodies under the control of God, our minds get changed, transformed by the Spirit and the Word of God, and that helps us understand the will of God. Notice the end part of that verse. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So you see how it fits? The presentation of your body to God, the transformation of your mind, equals the apprehension of God's will, generally. Those first two verses are like a general introduction to the rest of this section. He's telling you what you ought to do generally, and then he gets specific, beginning in verse 3. He applies the will of God to specific things. The first thing is the body of Christ. How do I discern the will of God in the body of Christ? How do I know where I fit in the church, what my role is, how I should function? What should I do beyond just attending church? And the answer is found beginning in verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, as God has dealt each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And then gifts are listed. In the body of Christ, we need an honest appraisal. We have to evaluate ourselves. I love the way Paul puts it. Um, verse 3, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. An honest appraisal. Let me give it to you in a more memorable way. If you want to know the will of God for you, and you should want to know this, where do you fit in the body in the church? You present your body to God. Presentation. Transformation of your mind. Third, evaluation of yourself. You evaluate yourself. You think honestly about yourself. An elderly woman came up to me after church on Sunday, and she said, um, I've started to come to your church the last uh, month or so, and um, I'm from another church. I won't tell you which one it's from, but I'm not going to be in Albuquerque long. This next year I'm going to be moving on, but I want to become a member of your church. How do I do that exactly? And I said, well, let me ask you this. Sir. You belong to Christ. You're born again. You are already a member of his body. Yes, I am. I know Jesus personally. And you're committed to this fellowship? Yeah, I'm coming here, and I'm committed to it. Well, then you're a member. That's it. Well, like, I don't need a letter or a certificate? No, you're a member. And we'll take care of you until God moves you on. She goes, okay, second question. Once I'm a member, what do I have to do? I said, well, it depends on what the Holy Spirit of God directs you to do. I'm not going to take your phone number down and have visions at night and call you and say, do this. Because <laughs> the Spirit lives in you. And He will direct you in the body, depending on the gifts that you have, the strengths that you have, knowing the weaknesses you have, and you get involved based upon that. She said, I like that. I like the way. That's the way it ought to be. But I love this. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Literally, don't overthink about yourself. 
The Phillips translation's classic. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself, of your own importance. You know what the biggest danger of being used by God is? Spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. God begins to use a person, and then you just start becoming very narrow in your focus, and you see yourself as God's gift to the world. You're not. You're God's gift to the body of Christ, among many other gifts that God has given to the body of Christ. But pride is a spiritual danger. And God does the work, but man loves to take the credit. It's always a danger, and we should always check ourselves. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And if, if somebody doesn't notice the use of my gift, will I walk away and be very angry and think they should notice me? And I want a plaque in the foyer. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 3? I think it was a, a crucial crossroads in the ministry of James and John. They were, or Peter and um, John. They were going up to the temple. It was the hour of prayer. And as they're walking up the steps to the temple, they notice there's a man who's been lame from birth. And he's begging. And uh, Peter says, uh, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Grabbed his hand, lifted him up. The man was instantly, totally healed. Now, at that point, all of the attention in the temple is directed toward these two servants of God. And it's an interesting crossroads because now they're sort of famous, you see. Now they have everyone's attention. Everybody looks at them and, wow, did you see those two Galilean dudes? They, they healed that guy. And so all of this adulation came. They could have thought, hmm, I'll use this to my advantage. I'll take an offering. I'll sell my latest book or whatever. Peter said, Men of Israel, why do you look so intently on us, as though we by our own power or godliness made this man walk? And, and I love it. They had integrity. They took all of the glory and gave it to God. And they said, in, in effect, yeah, the guy was healed, but we didn't do it. I didn't heal him. God healed him. I'm simply the instrument. All the glory doesn't go to us. Don't look at us. Look at him. That is integrity. And it takes an honest evaluation as God begins to use you that you don't think, you know, I'm really something special. More people ought to notice me. No. You ought to just serve more people and give all the glory to God. When you take a drink, let's, let's say, I don't know what your favorite uh, beverage might be. Let's just say you go to Dairy Queen, okay, and you get a malt, a vanilla malt, killer. <laughs> or you get a McFlurry or something at McDonald's. And you, you take a bite of that substance, and you enjoy it. Do you ever stop and look at the spoon and go, man, praise the spoon. <laughs> this cup. No. Why? Well, because you'd be a dork if you did. <laughs> but principally because the spoon and the cup are simply instruments to convey the substance to you. Or let's say a skilled surgeon fixed you up, operated on a part of your body, was a masterful surgeon, and then after the operation, walks into the recovery room, still has some of his tools. They don't do this, but let's say he has a scalpel and his forceps. And you were to go, hey, let me see that scalpel, doc. 
Ooh, what a cool scalpel. Oh, praise this scalpel. It did such a good job. I think the doctor would be insulted, don't you? I don't think it was the tool that did it. It was the master behind the tool that did it, the physician. He's the skilled person. And so when God uses people, those people, if they think more highly of themselves than they ought, is very dangerous. And God usually puts those people on the shelf quite quickly and finds other people who would just say, who am I? So the glory must go to God. We must never think of ourselves more highly than we ought. I love what Paul the Apostle said at one point. He said, what do you have that you didn't receive from God? And if you received it, why do you go around boasting as if it's of yourself? And so I'm reminded of that, and anytime somebody goes, well, that was a fantastic sermon, I'm reminded that God spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament. <laughs> so God can use anybody. And I'm simply just an instrument to convey his word. It says, don't think more highly, but it says to think soberly. Philip's translation again, try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities. What are your capabilities? What are you good at? How has God built you? How has God talented you? He's given you spiritual gifts and he's given you natural talents. And when you mix them together, what does it make? Sometimes we can overvalue ourselves. We can think more highly than we ought. The other mistake is to undervalue yourself. And one of the reasons, frankly, many people do not get involved in the body of Christ, their local church, is they hide behind this excuse. Oh, I'm not really good at anything. I don't feel confident enough. That's undervaluing yourself. Find the gift God has given you and think sanely about your own capabilities, as it says here. I personally believe that when God calls you to something, it's based upon how God has, has built you and your personality, your strengths, your limitations, as well as your spiritual gifts. And based upon that, you know, God isn't an ogre. I'm going to call you to something. Let me think. What is the one thing that person would hate more than anything else? Oh, yeah, I'm going to call him to that. God doesn't do that. In his book, Knowing God's Will, Blaine Smith said, quote, God exercises his providence in creating our personalities. I may trust that he has not allowed my particular personality to develop by accident, but has fashioned my inclinations and preferences as a means of motivating me in certain directions. By looking to the desires that are most basic to my personality, I can gain vital insights into where God is leading me. So, think soberly about yourself. Evaluate yourself. Who you are, what you like, what you are like. As God, it says at the end of that verse, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Consider your talents, consider your gifts, and consider the kind of faith that God has given you to do. Some people would say, you know, I'm going to move to China. Another person would say, China! I mean, there's like hardly, that'd be tough. I mean, the language is hard, and economically it's hard. And Yeah, I know, but I just believe God wants me to go. I'm going to go. I have faith that God's called me. I really want to do it. Another person says, oh, I'd never go there. God hasn't given him that faith. But God has given him faith according to his will for something else. And so we need to evaluate. Verse 4. 
See, made it through another couple verses. We're cooking. For as we have many members in one body, this is the body of Christ, of course, the church, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, let's use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, etc. To know the will of God for you, where you fit in the church, in the body of Christ. You present your body to God, the presentation of your body, the transformation of your mind, the evaluation of yourself before God. Don't think too highly. Don't think under. But what, how, how has God made you? Fourth, information. Get all the information from the Bible about the different positions and functions and gifts that are in the church and find, once you have that information, where you fit. We learn. And so there's a list of gifts in verse 6 through 8 that are given here to emphasize the unity of the body and the variety of activities that are gifted activities. A doctor has many tools. If a doctor had one tool, let's say he just had a scalpel, and he came in and he didn't really examine you much. He just said, you know, I've got a pain right here. Oh, I'll cut it open. Now, you would hope that that doctor would have a variety of tools, diagnostic instruments to find out why you're feeling that way, and then a variety of other instruments to treat the problem. He has access to a lot of them. It could be radiation treatment. It could be chemotherapy. It could be surgery. It could be nothing, depending on the nature of the problem. A mechanic has many tools. You come in, your car has a problem. He doesn't take a hammer to the car. It's got a ding right here. Well, let me give it a bigger ding. <laughs> if he's skilled, he will use the variety of tools that he has to fix the problem, to deal with the issue. The Lord has a variety of gifts that he distributes to the body of Christ so it can function smoothly so we can integrate nicely and so God can be glorified in the midst of it. The point here is that we should never envy somebody else's giftedness, but rather find out where we fit. Find out who we are. Get comfortable with who you are in the body of Christ and naturally begin to function that way. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, covet earnestly the best gifts. And that's bothered some people. Covet earnestly the best gifts. Well, what's the best gift? Let's say you walked into a store. You wanted to buy a gift for somebody. You walked into a huge department store and you saw the teller and you said, excuse me, I'd like your best gift. They'd say, well, there's a lot of gifts to choose from. Which do you want? The best one. The best one for whom? I mean, if the guy's into hunting and you buy him a needlepoint kit, wouldn't be the best gift. It depends, does it not, on the person. It depends, does it not, on what you want to get done. You walk into a tool shop. You walk into furrows or you walk into home base and you say, I'd like your best tool. They're going to ask you, well, what do you want to do? Well, I'd like to cut wood. Well, then your best tool would not be a hammer. It would be a saw. 
And so what is the best gift for you? It depends what God's called you to do. If God's called you to win people to Christ, the gift of evangelism is the best for you. If God's called you to counsel people, then the gift of encouragement would probably be the best for you. There's a variety of gifts, and there's a list here. There's a sampling in Romans 12 of seven gifts of the Spirit, as there are a sampling in 1 Corinthians 12 of nine gifts of the Spirit, and there's five gifts that are mentioned in Ephesians. And they all fit together in the body of Christ. A word about spiritual gifts, because we're going to cover this list and we close with this tonight. There are some people in church circles that make a very narrow designation of spiritual gifts. I've noticed this, and I've actually been humored by it. It's sad in one sense, but it's humorous on the other because they forget about all of the other beautiful gifts in the body of Christ. And so somebody will say, do you believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Yes, I do. Really? Are you filled with the Spirit? Yeah, I am. Welcome. Nobody spoke in tongues tonight. Hello? I think there's more than just one gift, right? Usually when people think of the gifts of the Spirit, they think monolithically. They think of mouth gifts. Speaking in tongues, prophesying, or a word of knowledge, word of wisdom, three or four gifts. Neglecting gift of mercy, gift of teaching, gift of administration, on and on and on, that make the body function. I've had somebody say after a Bible study, why weren't there any gifts of the Spirit in operation? And I wonder what Bible they read. And when I show them that gift of teaching is a gift and what it's for, and then other gifts that were operated that night in the worship group, individually, before and after the services, yeah, I know, but. As if to say, well, those are okay, but there's this other side that until you experience this little niche, you haven't been fully immersed. You're not on that par. Okay, let, let's go down this list. First of all, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. There is a gift of prophecy. It was evident in the Old Testament, and there is a gift of prophecy in the New Testament as well. Now, just for the record, I don't believe the gifts of the Spirit have ceased for today. I still believe in the concurrent operation, the contemporary operation of the gifts of the Spirit that they're for today, but they're to be done decently and in order. All things can be done, but all things should be done decently and in order. And there is a gift of prophecy. Now, when you think of a prophet, perhaps, you get a visual. You might think of a guy in sandals and a long robe, and he walks around screaming at people. Because maybe you've read certain things like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And, of course, Ezekiel did more than just scream at people. He had some really interesting ways of getting his message across, one of which he was naked. And I would not <laughs> suggest that you do that. You'd have problems in any church you'd go to. But the idea of a prophet is a person who is authorized to speak for another person. That's what it means. Somebody who prophesies is authorized to speak for another person. Now, in the Old Testament, there were prophets that were sent to Israel. God had his prophets for his nation. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel preached to Judah, the southern kingdom of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. 
Amos and others preached to the northern kingdom of Israel. Jonah preached to other nations, Ninevites. When they spoke for God, some of it was instructive, some of it was teaching, some of it was predicting God's judgment upon people, others predicted God's future glory. So some of it was calling people back to God. Other parts of it were futuristic. It was predictive. They predicted things that came to pass. In the New Testament, though there is a predictive element in prophecy, better than looking at it as foretelling the future, New Testament prophecy would be best understood, I believe, as forth-telling or speaking forth the Word of God. That doesn't mean teaching or preaching, necessarily. It's something that is localized and specific for a a situation. Um, In 1 Corinthians, for example, prophecy is to be weighed by the church and judged by the leadership of the church before it's accepted. Whereas apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles, the apostles' doctrine, wasn't to be weighed and judged by the church. It was to be believed, heard, and obeyed. And so prophecy was more of a localized thing, a word of the Lord in a specific situation. You may remember in, um, I think it's Acts 21, there's a colorful guy by the name of Agabus. And uh, he's in Caesarea. Paul felt like it was God's will for him to leave Ephesus and go to Jerusalem, so he sails through these ports and he makes it down to Caesarea and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And Agabus takes a belt, and Paul's belt. Imagine walking up to Paul, taking his sash from him and binds himself in it so it's tight and then he says the man that owns this belt is going to be bound when he goes to Jerusalem now all he had to do is say Paul the Lord spoke to me and said you're going to be bound when you go to Jerusalem you're going to get in trouble but no he he was this kind of a colorful prophet and uh, it was a local word from the Lord it had a futuristic element and it happened to come true and it was preparing Paul for what he was going to go through in Jerusalem Now, a word about prophecy in the New Testament sense. When somebody comes and is a prophet, gives a prophecy to a person, it is not condemning. It is not condemnatory. In fact, it's it's very uplifting. In 1 Corinthians 14.3, he who prophesies speaks edification exhortation or encouragement, and comfort to men. Now that's important because I meet an awful lot of so-called prophets. They'll introduce themselves, usually like this. I'm a prophet. Oh, really? Great. What do you got to say? It's usually, thus saith the Lord. You know, and it's very condemning. And I get letters from prophets. And, and I would agree, a lot of the letters I get, they are prophets. They're false prophets. Now, I will weigh whatever word of the Lord people get or they want to write or whatever. I'll weigh it to the scripture. And if it seems to go with the scripture, and I'll humble myself and I say, Lord, is there a message you have for me here? Then open, show me. I'm open to it. If not, I file it in the trash can. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. It's going to uplift people and encourage them in their walk with the Lord. That's a prophet in the New Testament sense. Unfortunately, 
Many people will not do anything unless they get a specific word from the Lord. Not content to read the scripture and get guidance from the word of God. That's too primary, they think. That's too carnal for some reason to go to the Bible. They will dismiss that. They will dismiss godly counsel. They'll dismiss waiting on the Lord and trusting God, though they can't see what the future holds. They'd rather have somebody saying, oh, wait a minute, I have a word of God for you. Here it is. Thus saith the Lord, and go do this. Okay, great, I'll go do it. Now, you can see that can be abused, right? I've seen it abused. And some people use it for their own benefit. When I was doing a Bible study, when I lived back in uh, California, I was in Garden Grove teaching a Bible study, and we were praying, and a man stood up, and he prophesied. And for some reason, when somebody says, Thus saith the Lord, nobody wants to touch that guy. It's like, he, said, he just said, Thus saith the Lord. You know, you don't want to mess with that. <laughs> well, when I heard his prophecy, I knew he was bogus because he said, Thus saith the Lord, and he turned to this girl, The Lord told you to marry me. I thought, That's snake. <laughs> he didn't have enough guts to actually ask himself, so he's going to couch it. And of course, I knew he was a false prophet because she had a wedding ring, she was already married. So trying to get himself out, he goes, well, you married the wrong person then. You know, it's, you're out of the will of God. You're, you're to leave him and, and to marry me. Notice the end of that phrase, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. It seems in the original language that there's a definite article before faith, and it's not speaking of our faith, but the faith. It's the faith that we have. All of us own the faith in Christ. But it's the faith. It's the, this is the body of faith, the Christian faith. We need to prophesy in accordance to the given faith of the word, based on the word of God, the Christian truth. So we have to match everything according to the scriptures is the idea. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. Do you know that you have a ministry? You know, we have kind of a warped idea of the ministry. We say, well, I'm in the ministry. Or I'm in the full-time ministry. <laughs> Listen, you're all in full-time ministry. You're all called to do something for God. Being in the ministry isn't just standing up in front of people in a pulpit or having a reverend before your name or, you know, honorary doctor reverend before your name. The idea is serving God, and everyone is called to serve. 1 Corinthians 12 says, There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And the word for ministry here means practical service. It's the word in Greek, diakonia, deacon, deacon. And deacon wasn't an official title as much as it was a designation of what they did. They served practical service. By the way, the same word is used in Acts chapter 6 for those who ministered in the word of God, deaconed in the word of God, taught the scripture, and those who served at the tables. It's the same thing. It's practical service. And the idea is that when somebody in the body of Christ has a need, God is beginning to move on people's hearts to meet that need with a gift of ministry, or perhaps some see it as the gift of help. It's a beautiful gift, never taught usually. When people say, do you believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Do you operate in the gifts? They will usually disregard the gift of helps. You know why? Because nobody sees you. Half the fun of doing good is being noticed. 
or being heard. And so we talk about tongues and prophecy and interpretation of prophecy or interpretation of tongues and a word of wisdom and word of knowledge. But helps. So vital, so necessary. So edifying. And then it says, he who teaches in teaching. The gift of teaching is the ability to interpret, to clarify, to explain God's truth in an understandable manner. It is, in my opinion, and you would expect me to say this probably, one of the most needed gifts in the body of Christ. I don't find it that many places. Now, if you've listened to our radio station, you think, oh, it's all over the place. I listen to teacher after teacher after teacher. Well, we had to find them. If you look at what most churches look for in terms of a pastor, it's usually not a teacher. It's somebody to raise money for a budget or to exhort people or to do everything but be in the pulpit and teach the Word of God. One of the most necessary gifts, I believe, in the church at large is to instruct people in the Word. Give them the tools. Too many preachers, I believe, hammer people all the time. You need to be more loving. You need to be more involved. You need to do this. You need to do that. All the while, the congregation is thinking, I'd like to be more loving. I'd like to be involved. I'd like to do that. Would you just teach me how? And that's why when you teach the Word of God, you equip people with tools to learn how to live, to learn how to love, to learn how to serve God. In 2 Timothy, Paul said, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the nurturing in the church. You know it, you teach it, and you teach it to people who will teach it to others. Now in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives another list. He mentions five gifts, and he does, does mention um, pastor and teaching, pastoring and teaching, for the building up of the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. In that particular instance in Ephesians 4, pastor and teacher, it refers to one person, not two. There, there's a, a Greek construction. It's not really important that, that you know exactly what it is. It's called the Granville Sharp Rule. But it says that those two words connect and refer to the same person. So a better translation would be a pastor that is a teacher, or in particular a teacher. The point to be made is that if you're a teacher, you don't have to be a pastor. But if you are a pastor, you have to teach. You have to have the gift of teaching. It's one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not only does he have to be pure and a man of integrity, etc., but he has to be able to teach. It's one of the qualifications to build up the body of Christ as a teacher. Now, I did mention that you may have the gift of teaching and yet not be called to the pastoral ministry. And that's one beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit. He gives gifts, and they're so individual, like snowflakes or fingerprints. No two are really alike. They're different according to the, the need and the person who has the gift. And again, in 1 Corinthians 12, there are differences of gifts, differences of administrations, and differences of operations, but the same God. So you can have one gift that operates differently in different people. One person may have the gift of teaching, and he speaks to large crowds. Others may speak to a small group in a kinship. 
Others may speak one-on-one, and they do best in a one-on-one setting. Others are gifted writers, and they can communicate and teach through the written word. There's many ways to see that gift manifested. Then it says, he who exhorts in exhortation. NIV, if you have it, says encouragement, does it not? That's probably a good way to look at that word, encouragement. Exhortation. Boy, has that word been abused, I think. Let me exhort you, brother. How can you say that if the word means encourage? Let me encourage you, brother. Encouragement. It's the word parakaleo. It was the word I gave you last week. I beseech you, brethren. I beg you. Parakaleo. One who's called alongside somebody else to be their helper, their advocate. It's the word given to the Holy Spirit. He's our helper. He comes alongside of us to help us. So somebody with the gift of encouragement or exhortation comes alongside somebody else and helps them mature. Oftentimes when somebody says to me or to others, I have the gift of exhortation, what they often mean is, I have the gift of condemnation. That is not a gift, by the way. Just in case you're going, there there is one? Uh, That's what I have. I'm glad it's there. No, it's not. Some people mistakenly think it is, however, and they will exhort people and get very angry and nasty and mean with them, sort of like some who think the gift of prophecy is that way, what it means to build up or to encourage, to edify. Notice that it follows teaching. I think that's designed that way. It naturally follows teaching. Because when you get fed the Word of God, there comes a time where you need somebody to come alongside with a gift of exhortation and say, now use it. There's a danger. There's a danger in being well-fed spiritually. Just like you can overeat physically and you can get obese, you can overeat spiritually and become spiritually lethargic. You don't exercise, and pretty soon you just take it all in, and you don't really expend anything. You don't exercise spiritually, and you end up a critic, a sermon connoisseur. But you don't really live it. It does no good. You can become spiritually obese. So the gift of exhortation comes along and stirs up what has been laid in the foundation through the gift of teaching. When I was in Hawaii a few weeks ago, it was on Father's Day, I walked into a shop on the north shore of Oahu, and uh, there was this skateboard that was there, and I I loved to skateboard, and I saw this, and this was just, it was Father's Day, you know. And uh, I saw this skateboard, I said, I know what I want for Father's Day, I want this skateboard. It was a Duke Kahanamoku skateboard, he was this old surfer, kind of in the patron saint of surfing. And um, it was, you know, beautifully wood designed and it was just a, it was a classic. So I got the skateboard. Now let's say I'm going to, you say, Skip, I want to go skate. I want to skate. And I, I'll skate with my son. We'll find some ditches when it's not raining and nice roads and we'll carve them up. 
And let's say I, I take you out and I explain to you a skateboard. So this is the gift of teaching. Okay, now a skateboard is shaped this way and they've got trucks and wheels. This is how it operates and little, you know, you kind of stand and, and then you'd balance your weight and when you want to turn, you lean one side and the other. And I can go through all of the teaching. But there comes a time when you stand there at the, at the edge of the dish or the ditch or, or the road and you just need me to give you a push. That's exhortation. <laughs> All of the instruction now needs to be put into practical use. And so you teach the person, you go, Phew. and we need a spiritual shove every now and then, or a spiritual kick in the pants, you might say. Oh, okay, I'm going to go do that. A couple days later in Hawaii, we were on the south shore, and the waves were breaking, and so my son wanted to learn how to surf, so we got a big, long surfboard, and we put him on it, and he was having a little bit of trouble getting it going, so I would stand out on a coral head. I was tall enough to stand on a coral head, and then the waves would come, and I would take him, and he would hold on tight, and I'd push him as hard as I could into the wave, give him a little extra boost, boost and then the wave would take him, and he would ride it. I taught him how to paddle out, taught him how to stand up, but I pushed him into it, gave him enough boost to get up. Exhortation works well with teaching. We get fed, we get fed, and then we need to learn to apply it. By the way, um, you might look at this as counseling. Some people have asked me, there's no gift of counseling in the Bible. Well, the Revised English Bible calls this exhortation the gift of counseling. And so often this ability to press home to people's hearts an application of the Word of God in a counseling setting is how this gift is often used. He who gives, it says, with liberality or simplicity is one translation. Did you know there's a gift of giving? It's a gift. Now that's not talked about much e either, is it? Do you believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Yes. What about the gift of giving? You can say, well, I definitely don't have that gift. <laughs> uh, let's, just, let's just delineate something right now. Because you may or may not have a gift in an area does not preclude you from obeying God in that general area. For example, all of you don't have the gift of being an evangelist, but we're all called to preach the gospel, share the word, plant seeds perhaps. Maybe not harvest them, but plant seeds. All of us. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Every creature is the mandate of the church. Now you can't say, well, I can't do that. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Okay, let's say you see somebody by the side of the road who's bleeding, and they say, help me. Oh, I don't have the gift of helps. <laughs> you get the picture. You may not have the gift of helps in particular, but somebody needs help, generally. You may not have the gift of evangelism in particular, like you wouldn't maybe be fond of going door to door and or have, you know, talking to people point blank. Others would, but we're all called in some capacity to share. You may not have the gift of giving per se, but we're all called to obey God by giving our resources to him. Some, however, have a special ability from God, a gift, truly a gift of giving, to give sacrificially of their resources to help people. And it is a gift. And I've seen God bless certain individuals financially. 
And I look at it and say, man, God has blessed that guy so much. And, and it just, it, he, God lavishes financial blessing on them. Why? As I notice their lives, I notice it's because God can entrust those riches to them. They don't hoard them. They look for ways to bless people and to build up the body of Christ. And so that person doesn't hoard but becomes a channel. And I often watch God bless people financially who are open to be channels of God, not hoarded. An example of the gift of giving was a guy by the name of R.G. Letourneau. He was one of the big inventors of the big earth-moving machines. He said, quote, The question is not how much of my money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. Now, it's easy to say that. You know how much he gave to the Lord's work? 90% of everything he made, he gave to God's work. He kept 10. He didn't give 10 and keep 90. He gave a lot of it away because God blessed him so immensely. He had a gift of giving. How should the gift be operated? It says here, with liberality or with simplicity. That's how one translation puts it. Without ostentatiousness, just this simple, straightforward way of doing it. I think all giving should be uncomplicated, don't you? I mean, if God lays it on your heart, give. But, but some complicate it. It's not done with simplicity. Some churches like to have thermometers at the front of the church. This was our giving last week. I think we can do better this week. Or this was our giving last year, or whatever. Or somebody gets a plaque because they gave so much. And this wing is dedicated. And, and it's, it gets messy. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver, literally. Ha, 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 ha. Woo! All right, man. I got to give. That's the idea behind the language. God loves that. So when people say, How much am I supposed to give, preacher? It's as much as you want. Pray about it. What does God put on your heart? What are the needs you see? Do it with simplicity, with liberality. He who leads with diligence, leadership, is kind of a general term. We find it in deacons and elders and pastors. It's the same idea of 1 Corinthians 12. Paul called it the gift of administrations. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy is a gift of the Spirit. I love to find people with a gift of mercy, especially when I need it. When I feel discouraged, when I feel like I've blown it, when I feel like I've sinned, there are some people that I know that exhibit the gift of mercy. It's the ability to see suffering, to see broken hearts when other people would not even notice them. But they see them. They're tender. They're compassionate. They reflect the character of God. Gift of mercy can take many forms helping people in mental institutions, in hospitals, in jail ministries, convalescent home situations. Notice how it's to be done, though, with cheerfulness. Well, that's so important. When you're around broken hearts, you want to understand them, but you also want to bring joy. If you are as gloomy as they are, you're just going to make it worse. So show mercy, but do it with cheerfulness, joy. So, to know God's will for you in the body of Christ is presentation, transformation, your mind, 
evaluation of yourself before God, information, learn about the gifts, find out where you fit in. And we'll close with one final one. I'll take you back to verse 6. Utilization. You can't pass this up. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Here's his point. Once you discover who you are and what gifts God has given you, go do it. Just start using them. Just look for ways to get involved and to bless the body of Christ. And I think it's as simple as that. How did you learn to ride a bike? Do you remember that far back? Did you get a book? How to ride a bicycle. Or riding bicycles for dummies, maybe. I don't know. They have everything else called that. And did you, like, read it and underline paragraphs and memorize? Okay, now. No, you just got on it. And you just did it. And so let us use gifts. Try things out. Go for it. If you feel a special calling in your heart or a desire to go do something, try it out. Ask yourself, do you enjoy using this gift? When you attempt to work in this area of ministry or gift of the Spirit, do you enjoy it? Second, are others benefiting from your use of it? See, if somebody says, you know, I really feel like I have the, I'm an evangelist. But if they never lead a person to Christ, it's kind of doubtful. So you want to look at the fruit of it. Do you enjoy using it? Do others benefit from it? And third, do you feel comfortable doing it? Do you feel comfortable doing it? Now, I could drag you door to door. You're going to witness tonight. You're going to be a real Christian. We're going to knock on the door. And as the door opens up, you're going to ask that person if he knows Christ, if he knows that if he died, he'd go to heaven. And you might, out of fear and respect, doubt it, but you, you might, okay, I'll do it. Or you might knock on the door and say, Dear Lord God, I pray nobody's home in Jesus' name. If you do, you're not comfortable. I believe, and I said it Sunday, God works supernaturally, very naturally. How has God crafted you, gifted you, built you? There was a young boy in Chicago, Illinois. He wanted to get involved. He didn't know exactly what to do, but he liked ministering to younger boys. They were becoming men, and he wanted to really impact their decision-making. So the superintendent of the North Wells Sunday school in Chicago, said he should go downtown in the poor section of the town and, and minister among them, invite them to Sunday school. Well, the young man's name was Dwight Moody. He didn't know what his activities would eventually lead to. It led to the Moody Bible Church in Chicago, and later the Moody Bible Institute. It became a huge evangelistic institution in our country and in the world, affecting thousands for Christ. And so often, that's how people in the ministry get started. They just, I want to do this. I just feel like God has put it on my heart. They get involved, God blesses, and they go from there. So present your body first, and then second, get active in the body of Christ. Transformation of your mind, evaluation of your gift, getting all the information, and then once you do, use it, try it.